0: We are, at the moment of our text, 50 days for the crucifixion of our Lord. We are but 10 days after his ascension. And so we find ourselves at the Feast of Weeks, or what we commonly call Pentecost, 50 days after the, after the Passover. And what you find in this text is something, of course, that's quite significant. The Christian church has acknowledged, of course, for 2,000 years that what we find recorded for us in this text, this portion of God's word, is a momentous, a watershed moment. But I would submit to you this morning that that part of the text that we read is perhaps the most profound element of the entirety of this chapter. It is, of course, significant that the Spirit of God has come as Christ had promised, and that he came with signs and with wonders, with tongues of fire, and, and with a speaking of tongues as well. But I would submit to you that that which is most significant, that which is most enduring, belongs to those verses that we read this morning. Where there you find the Apostle Peter, making perhaps one of the most important sermons Peter would ever preach. A sermon where he an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, would stand and call the church underage, the Jewish church, to come to maturity. That is, to embrace Jesus Christ, her Messiah, to move from her adolescence out from under the signs and the shadows and come into the substance that was Jesus Christ and the new visible covenant community. That is Peter's preaching here. He stands at this moment calling the church of the Old Testament to see and to now submit to the Messiah. He calls her, as I've just said, from immaturity to maturity, from shadow to substance. And so, friend, as you come to these last words of exhortation that you have in our text, especially verses 37 to 40, you find that's precisely what Peter is doing. And as these ones who hear this preaching are pricked in the heart, that is, literally, in the word, they are stabbed in the heart by what Peter has preached. They go to the apostle and they plead that he would instruct them now on what they must do. You can understand why they were pricked in heart. Peter has not made a sermon where he's told them that they have sinned like their fathers. That's not Peter's preaching at all. He comes to this generation and says, they are guilty of nothing less than the body and blood of the Lord of glory. The indictment that Peter gives to this generation is nothing less than having personally slain the incarnate Son of God. a friend, it is a heinous thing to shed innocent blood. But the indictment that this generation was under was even worse, was even more grave than any other indictment for those who were guilty of innocent, shedding innocent blood. Their victim was the Lord of Glory. And so they come to this point where they're pinched with conviction. And they say, what then must we do? Peter urges them to repent and to be baptized, which we'll take up in just a moment. But that exhortation is grounded in something that is communicated to us in verse 39. He says, for the promise is unto you and to your children. Now why is this so significant? Well, friend, it's significant because you of course remember that here you have a, a congregation, a very vast congregation of Jews, both those who are natively Jews, that is Jews by ethnicity, and also those who are Jews by proselytism. These
1: were all
0: those who had professed the faith of Abraham. And Peter says, you must repent, you must come and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Find remission of sins only in him. And then he says to these Jews, for the promise is unto you and to your children. A friend, for those who heard this first of all, you'd recognize that that was a very, very familiar formula. A formula that took them back immediately to what you find in Genesis 17. The promise Abraham had received from God is that God would be his God and the God of his seed after him. That the promise was to Abraham and to his children. And now, says Peter, you are to repent and to believe because the promise is to you and to your children. It's the Abrahamic formula. It is nothing other than I will establish my covenant between me and the and thy seed. What Peter is saying here, very unequivocally, is that the Jesus whom he preaches is the embodiment, the sum, and the substance of that which was promised to Abraham and to his seed. But we can go further. I want you to notice, friend, that as you look at this text, you recognize that this, of course, is a moment where Peter is urging them to exercise true faith in Jesus Christ. But he is also urging them to do something other, something far more visible. He's urging them to come out, as I've already said, out from under the shadows and the ceremonies, out, as you notice here, from an untoward generation. That is a defecting church a church that had rejected her Messiah. And to come and be part of that, which is the true covenant community constituted in the new covenant. Friend, what I want you to notice here is that he says, repent and then be baptized. And then as you continue to read, friend, you notice this, he has that exhortation, save yourselves, that is, absent yourselves from this untoward generation. And in verse 41, he says, In compliance with that, they were added to the church. Now, what does all of this say to us? Well, friend, it only reiterates for us, in in one sense, how significant this moment really is. Peter is urging them to look to the substance that was in the covenant made with Abraham, namely Jesus Christ. But then he is also urging them to be part of his covenant community. That is to be added under the visible church. To take upon themselves the sign, the initiating sign of baptism and be added to the number of those who profess the name of Jesus Christ. And they do. And he says that this is nothing less than complying with that exhortation to save oneself from that untoward generation. It's a significant moment. Because here in this text we find, friend, that the covenant of grace that covenant that of grace made with God's people from the moment of Adam's transgression in the garden right through the running centuries, its sum and its substance is Jesus Christ. Peter says, if you would have the blessing of Abraham, you must find it only in the Lord Jesus. But then he also says this, and friend, we can't miss this this morning, that the covenant privileges now are to be found among those who profess the name of Jesus. Those who profess the sum and substance of that covenant, the Christian church. He calls them out from the church that was defecting and immature and calls them to come to that which was maturity, that which we refer to as the Christian church. And friend, what I want us to do this morning, just very briefly, is I want us to see how this text reinforces for us that covenant privileges belong only to the Christian church. Covenant privileges belong only to the Christian church. And I want us to see that under three headings. I want us to take a step back for a moment and look at what Peter says about the substance of this covenant. Then I want us to see how the, the apostle describes one subscription to this covenant. And then finally, I want us to look at the subjects to whom this belongs. So take first of all the substance, and that you have in verse 39 referred to simply as the promise. In the immediate text, you recognize that the promise is defined for us first of all as the remission of sins. Now, what Peter here is saying, it's very pointed. What he's saying here is that here, internally, the covenant offers nothing less than the actual remission of sins, not just the ceremonies, not just the ritual purification that was given in the law, but that the covenant, the substance of the covenant, its spiritual blessings go so far as even to say to this generation that remission of sins is yours through the Lord Jesus Christ as you take hold of him by faith. And then he says this, they would also have the gift of the Holy Ghost. Friend, just briefly, it's important for us to recognize he's not here referring to that which was the extraordinary benefits that were known uniquely to the apostolic age. He's not here speaking about tongues of fire and speaking in foreign tongues miraculously. And we know that, of course, because he says that this promise is to as many as the Lord our God shall call. And that is both neither bounded by geography nor by time. The promise that's referred to here, rather, is that the gift of the Holy Ghost would be that, the New Testament measure of the Spirit. The Old Testament had the Spirit of God before, otherwise none could be regenerate. But in the New Covenant, friend, you remember that the Spirit of God would be poured out in greater measure. Also behind this is the idea that you find communicated to us in Galatians 4.6, where the Spirit of God is given not just once, as it were, not just one measure in the life of the Christian, but the Spirit of God is continually with increasing measures given to the people of God. Take Galatians four six for example. The apostle says, because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Uh, Thomas Manton on that text, I think, very aptly puts it to us this way. God, first of all, makes us sons. And then he says, and then he gives us continual and greater measure of his spirit. And so, friend, this is the promise. Nothing less than remission of sins for those who are internally members of this covenant, and also as well, this vivifying power, this life-giving power that comes with the gift of the Holy Ghost. What's striking, friend, is that this is precisely how the apostle describes Precisely how the apostle describes the blessing of Abraham. In Galatians 3 and 14, you read this that the promise, sorry, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Note what there the Apostle Paul does. He says, That which was Abraham's blessing is our promise. That which was the substance of Abraham's covenant is ours. The apostles then call this promise the same as Abraham's. Which means then in this text, friend Peter is saying, as it were, Jews and proselytes repent, that is, become true and internal members of this covenant of grace, for only in Jesus have you Abraham's blessing and the fruition of his covenant. And so, friend, the substance of this covenant is communicated to us very, very, very pointedly. The spiritual blessings here of the covenant are only received as men and women repent and take hold of Jesus Christ by faith. That's the only way to enjoy the spiritual benefits that belonged to Abraham's covenant. That's the only way to enjoy the promise that is here communicated to all those who are there in the visible church. Now, friend... As you look at this text, you recognize that the apostle then says that the same covenant was one in substance, that which Abraham had and that which we. So in Galatians 3 8, Abraham is said to have had the gospel preached before unto him. In John 8, Christ says, Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. Abraham looked to Christ by faith, and that's how he enjoyed those spiritual blessings. But friend, the point that I would drive home and that which we we cannot miss as we look at this text. is the Peter is saying that the sum and substance of all of those things is found in Jesus Christ. This Jesus whom I preach is nothing less than the embodiment of all of those blessings that the godly longed for for the ages. Friend, it's important for us to think of the Lord Jesus Christ as the substance of the covenant. Twice in Isaiah's prophecy, that is precisely how Christ is so described. The Lord says, I, the Lord, have called thee, that is Christ, in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Note what he says there. He's not saying there that I will make a covenant with thee for them, but I will give them to I will give you to them as a covenant. Because indeed, friend, he is the sum and substance of the whole. And that that's precisely what Peter is preaching to these, these Jews and proselytes. You are to lay hold of him, he only who is the substance. And so, friend, what you have in this text is nothing, nothing short of a wonderful exposition of the glory of the person of Christ. You and I ought to marvel here at how our Lord is described. Again, the hope of the ages, Peter says is found only in Him. And with Isaiah we find, because it is only in Him, that its substance is truly known and found. Friend, does this lead your heart? Does this lead your heart to extol the Lord of glory? All the hopes of the godly, the longing of the ages, Peter says, in Him. In Him alone are they found? This is the Jesus whom Peter preaches, the very substance of the covenant. Up to this point, though, we've been meditating on that which Peter refers to as the promise, but he's referring specifically there to the internal aspects of that promise, the spiritual benefits that belong to those. And, And it's important for us to recognize that those benefits belong only to those who repent and believe. But we notice in this text that that is not all that the Apostle says here about the covenant or the promise. In other words, he's not only here thinking about the internal elements of this covenant, he's also thinking about externals. And how do we know that? Well, come down here to verse 39 again where his exhortation to them is to be baptized in Jesus' name. A friend, this is an external aspect of this covenant. Because first of all, as we'll see in a moment's time, this is nothing less than an exhortation to receive the initiating sign and seal of that promise. And so he is urging them to take upon themselves that external sign that would bring them into this covenant community in a visible way. In other words, what Peter is preaching here is he says, you proselytes, who by the way would have gone through their own kind of baptism. You remember the proselytes were brought into Judaism through baptism. He says, you proselytes, another baptism is now required in order to join the Lord's covenant community. And that is a baptism in Jesus' name. And so friend, what you see here, what you see here so pointedly, Is that Paul? That Peter is saying that true subscription, external subscription to this covenant, and so coming into this body is baptism in the name of Christ. Now, in this way, friend, they would submit and publicly profess to their faith in this in this Jesus, whom Peter preached. By being thus baptized, those who heard them they would be testifying to the onlooking world that they indeed recognize that Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of the covenant, that only in him is their hope of salvation found. It was a public profession of faith that brought them into the church, as we read in verse 41. Now baptism, then, we find here, admits us into the covenant community. And as the larger catechism, question 165, puts it, and into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. A friend, you remember, of course, that in the old covenant, as we read from Genesis 17, the only way that one would be brought into the external covenant community, that is the visible people of God, was through the sign of circumcision. Circumcision. In fact, again, as you go back to Genesis 17, you find that those male children who were not circumcised were considered outside of that body. Now the Apostle Peter says there is another initiatory sign or seal that is required. Now, if that's the case, then you and I would expect that in the New Testament we would find some likeness between circumcision and baptism being that both, apparently, are initiatory signs and seals into the covenant, the visible people of God. Well, That's precisely what we find. We find, first of all, circumcision described in Romans 4 thus, that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith that he had while uncircumcised. It was a sign and seal of his faith. But then as you come to Colossians 2, you find that circumcision and baptism are joined together. And friend, this is so very important. According to apostolic doctrine, according to that which we receive from the Word of God, both circumcision and baptism said before us nothing less than the substance of the covenant, namely, Jesus Christ Christ, Living a sinless life, dying vicarious death, raising again and descending, friend all of those things, says the apostle there, as we read in Colossians 2, are both found in circumcision and in baptism. And so the apostles treat both of these signs, both initiatory signs, as referring to the self-same thing, referring to the sum and substance of the covenant. as friend, as we've already seen the apostles say that the substance of both administrations of this covenant are one and the same. And now he says that these two initiatory signs and seals, they both point to the same thing. So Peter urges the church underage to lay hold of these, to be brought into the visible people of God in the new covenant, Just as an illustration, friend, of how profound this is. Perhaps you know this, perhaps you've heard it through others, but in Muslim countries especially, men and women can profess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and for a period of time can, can go without persecution. Uh, many families, many communities won't touch those who openly and avowedly profess Jesus Christ until they're baptized. It's a striking thing, but it's something that you'll find right through, right through records from various organizations. Once the sign and the seal of baptism is applied, there and then they receive their hottest persecution. There you find families going out and, and urging, urging others to put their own sons or daughters to death. There you find communities railing against Christianity and evangelism. Friend, the answer to why that would be the case is very basic. We might have forgotten it, but certainly the enemies of the cross have not. But by taking on the initiatory sign and seal, those ones are saving themselves from an untoward generation as well. They are setting themselves apart from a people. Once that sign and that seal is applied, it solemnly designates them in the triune name to be unique from their family, their community, from their generation. And so, friend, even though you and I don't face that kind of persecution, that sign and that seal should be no less significant for us. It is nothing less than marking you apart from that generation, solemnly setting you visibly apart from the enemies of God. And so, friend, this is how they would subscribe to this visible community. But thirdly and finally, friend, as we close, we come to the subjects to whom this promise belongs. The subject. Now, he says here in verse 39 that the promise belongs to you and to your children and as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now what's so very striking about this, as our forebears have pointed out time and time again, is that the Apostle Peter does not say, this promise will be unto you upon believing. He is saying to these ones, this promise is yours already. In other words, they already, this congregation to whom Peter is preaching, already have some kind of stake in the covenant promise. And I want us to look very briefly in how we're to understand that. And I want us to take it subject by subject. So take, first of all, the, those immediately addressed. To you, says Peter, that is, to you who are members of the visible church under age, those who came in under. the the ordinances of the Old Covenant, those who were there, who were professors of the religion of Jehovah. And it's important to note that the Apostle Peter distinguishes this people, those to whom he's speaking, to the Gentiles whom he later refers to as those who are afar off. He's speaking to those who were then members of the visible church. And as such, in an external way, Because, of course, they received the signs and seals of that covenant administration. The promise did belong to them. Now, how are we to understand that? Because certainly these ones had not yet repented or believed. Otherwise, the Apostle Peter wouldn't urge them. So how can he say that the promise is already theirs? Uh, Rutherford very helpfully answers that question for us. He says, the promise is made to them absolutely whether they believe or not, though the blessing of the promise and covenant of grace is given and bestowed only conditionally. That is, if they believe. In other words, the promise is already theirs. It already belongs to them in the terms of their obligations to obey it and in terms of the external privileges that they know. But in order for them to enjoy the internal aspects of that covenant... They must repent and believe. In order for them to receive the fruition, as it were, of that promise, they must join this hearing with their faith. But I want you to notice something, friend. In this text, he joins the promise and the sign together. He says, you are under special obligation to repent. That is, to repent and believe, and also to be baptized. The exhortation is grounded again in the fact that the promise belongs to you. Now, it does not only belong to them, but he says expressly in the very next words, it also belongs to their children. And friend, it's important for us to note here again that here the Apostle Peter is saying that the promise, that is the promise, the external covenant, is theirs and not conditionally so. He doesn't say it belongs to you and to your children if they repent and believe. No, the promise belongs to you and to your children. And it's important for us to understand, friend, that it's so very important for us to understand that this is not a redundancy. Uh, the Apostle Peter here is not speaking superfluously. You, you recognize that if, if all that Peter wanted to communicate was that this promise belongs to you if you repent and believe and to anyone else, then the mention of their children is utterly, utterly unnecessary. He simply could have said, the promise belongs to you and as many as the Lord our God shall call. But he doesn't. Secondly, I also want you to notice, friend, that by mentioning the children here, if he meant that in any conditional sense, it would be a falsehood. What do I mean? Well, friend if this promise belongs to children only conditionally, well, then you recognize that it doesn't belong to them as children. It only belongs to them as believers. That's not what Peter says. He says it belongs to you and as such to your children. I also want you to notice, friend, that this would be an incredibly difficult sell for these proselytes to receive. To receive it as our Baptist friends would urge us to. That this text is only saying that, that your children are given the promise if they believe. Well friend you recognize that for Jewish proselytes that would be a very difficult thing to hear. Because in the old covenant administration their seed was called holy. God had promised to be the God of them and of their posterity. And if Peter's preaching is to be so construed as to exclude their children, then, friend, the new covenant, quite strangely, is somehow less than the old. And, friend, what comfort or consolation could that bring to a father? In the old covenant, God will be the God of, of my house. No, not in the new, says our Baptist friends. No, that's not what Peter says at all. He brings out the very formula from Genesis 17 to reiterate that the promise belongs to you and to your children. And what I want you to notice, friend, is that therefore therefore, they are under special obligation to believe as they are under special obligation to be baptized. To whom the promise is given, Peter says expressly, so also is the sign. Quoting again one of our forebears, saying on this text, he says, paraphrasing Peter's words, he says, Every one of you be baptized. That is, Father and Son. Why? Because the promise is to you and to your children. He goes on to say, Break the text into a hundred pieces. The meaning still is, These to whom the promise of the covenant does belong, these should be baptized. But the promise of the covenant is to you and to your children. Ergo, you and your children should be baptized. Again, says Rutherford, break the text into a thousand pieces and you're left with this. And so this text teaches us plainly, friend, that professed believers and their children are in the covenant. The promise does belong to them. And we recognize that we're speaking here in the external sense of the covenant. That is, the external privileges are theirs. This initiatory sign and right belongs to them. And just very briefly, it's important for us to note that by the apostles' insistence that circumcision and baptism refer to the selfsame thing, not to a nascent, that is, a full-grown or aged profession of faith, then it stands to reason that the same ones who received the sign of circumcision in the Old Covenant, who were also recipients of the promise in an external sense, should also receive that in the New. Well, Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as an aged man, exercising faith before sign and seal. That wasn't true of Isaac, Ishmael, or any of his posterity. They came under the profession of their father. And so, friend, what you find in the New Testament is the self-same thing. You find that in very practice, that that's precisely how the apostles use the sacrament of baptism. Once there's a profession of faith. Take, for instance, the Philippian jailer. The text there in Acts 16 is so remarkably clear, even clearer in the original than in the English. It says there that he rejoiced because he believed. And then because he believed his house was baptized. Note, note, friend, how Luke, the inspired historian, communicates that to us. Once this one had professed faith, then the whole household came under the sacrament, the initiatory sign of the covenant. Because the external privileges, as Peter preaches in our text, belongs to them. Now, friend, there's also so much more here. You see, once that sign and that seal is applied, you recognize it's not just access to baptism that is due to covenant families or homes, it's so much more. You see, in this text, you and I are to be reminded of the fact that they are to be treated as God's, His inheritance. If you go back to Ezekiel 16, you'll find that God calls even those of the Israelites, He calls them His inheritance, His children. They're to be treated as such. What that means, friend, is that all of the external privileges that belong to those who've been initiated externally into the covenant belong to them. Belonging to them by right is the preaching of God's word. It's an absolute necessity before God that parents bring their children under the external means of grace. I think often we think about that in terms, I suppose, of a parent's obligation before God only. But what Peter is saying here is that as the promise belongs to the children, the children themselves have a right to these things. If they're not under the preaching of God's word, if they're not under the instruction of his word, then friend, they're being defrauded of a right that is theirs. We can go further friend belonging to those who are part of this covenant community as the larger catechism so helpfully reminds us they are they are granted special provision to be under the care and government of this church they are protected and preserved uniquely in all ages notwithstanding the opposition of their enemies they enjoy the communion of saints the ordinary means of salvation and belonging to them peculiarly are the offers of grace by Christ to all the members of it in the ministry of the gospel. For all of those are privileges that belong to the visible church. And what Peter says is all, friend, the initiatory sign and all that follows belongs by right to them. And why is that? And I want us to close our meditation there. Friend, why is that? Because indeed they are set apart. Friend, in 1 Corinthians 7, perhaps you remember that there the apostle refers to the children of believers as being holy. Not because they themselves are, are endowed necessarily with, with the work of regeneration, but simply because their parents are believers, they're called holy. They're called set apart. Again, according to Baptist doctrine, and not not to be too harsh on our Baptist friends, but According to Baptist doctrine, that simply cannot be said. The the children of professed believers are to be regarded as no better, in no different category than those of pagans. That's not the apostles' doctrine, and that's not what Peter preaches in Acts 2. They're set apart, called out, as it were, externally from an untoward generation. And friend, why is that? To come here to the spiritual kernel, that which is really the comfort and should allay to the hearts of God's people. Why has God made it so that, that this expression of his covenant would, would be so extended? Well, friend, it's because the Lord our God is interested in redeeming all. All aspects that were touched by the fall. All of that which was good, Christ intends to make new. That does not only mean individual souls, it means families. It means nations. He will make all things new. And friend, in the sacrament of baptism, even as we find in Peter's preaching here, the promise extends in such a way that Christ will encompass all things. Redeem all that which was originally good. That which was once ravaged by the fall would be made new by his grace. Friend, that should thrill our hearts this morning. That such is the covenant of our God. That he's not interested only, friend, in individuals, but that his grace will penetrate the depths of society as well as its heights. Now, as we close our time this morning, as we come to observe the sacrament of baptism, the question ought to be posed to each of us, and that is, how do we improve as we're supposed to our own baptisms? How are we to take a text as that which we've just been meditating upon and make it useful to our souls as we observe the sacrament this morning? The first question is, is the necessary one. Have I been truly washed? It's one thing, friend, to belong to the external covenant community, It's another thing to have the benefits, the spiritual benefits of that covenant applied, which is only by laying hold of Jesus Christ by faith. Again, in Colossians 2, that's precisely what the Apostle says about baptism. Only by exercising faith on Christ is that which is signed and sealed in baptism personally, individually applied to the soul. Well, there are things in this text that help us answer that question, have I truly been washed? The first thing I want you to notice is in that which you find in verse 37. Those ones there are described as those who have been pricked in the heart. They have felt there the conviction of sin. And they have been driven out of themselves to seek refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, can you say that of yourselves this morning? Can you say you know what it is to be so pricked in heart as to find that there is no hope of salvation in yourself or in any other but the Lord Jesus Christ. If the answer to that is yes, then, friend, of course, the answer to our first question, have you been washed, is in the affirmative. Most assuredly, you have been washed. And then, friend, as you look at the sign and the seal, you're to recognize that just as the water rolls over Laura's head, Just as, as it were, the external body is cleansed in that moment. Friend, your souls have just as assuredly and just as really been cleansed in the labor of Christ. Just as real as you see that water applied. Friend, those who have taken hold of Christ by faith are supposed to remember that they too have just as really had the blood of Christ applied to them. But there's something in this text as well, friend, for our comfort that I would be remiss in not mentioning. I want you to recall for a moment, friend, the time in which this text was preached and the audience who first heard the sermon. There were many who were foreigners. We know that from the text. But there were also those mingled there from Jerusalem as well and who would remain in Jerusalem after the Feast of Weeks. Many, friend, who were part of that visible church, who just 50 days before had cried, had cried to Pontius Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. There were those in that crowd friend, who belonged to the church, who had submitted to those leaders, who had indeed, as Peter himself says, had crucified the Lord's Messiah. We've said this months ago now, but friend, it's important for us to remember that there is no greater, no more palpable sign of man's hatred toward God than that moment. And Peter says, you were there, and his blood is on your hands. You who reviled him, you who spit upon him, you who derailed, derided him as a blasphemer, regarded him as, as worse than a murderer. This Jesus offers to you nothing less than the remission of sins. Friend, it's a staggering thing, is it not? You know, when Peter says that they were guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord in this text, it's not a small indictment. I mean, you remember how Judas handles, really, his conscience saying the same thing. He despairs and sinfully hangs himself. Friend, one could perhaps manipulate the court of human judgment. We see that all the time. But sitting on our indictment like this generation, they had no appeal from the court of God. Such as as the heavy indictment they received. And yet he says to them, remission of sins is promised to all who lay hold of Christ by faith. Friend, there's a wideness in God's mercy here that you and I should meditate on, you and I should rest in. It even extends to those who just days before had crucified the Lord of glory. But if that were not all, friend, in this text, the Apostle Peter says, even as they lay hold of Jesus Christ, not only receive the remission of sins, but as they lay hold of him and receive the very substance of the covenant of grace. And friend, what's offered to them is the adoption of sons. The bringing in of their families all of the saving benefits that the people of God have been promised. Friend, what you see in this text then as we close is that in this sermon and as well in the sacrament of baptism, you find a solemn and wonderful proclamation of the grace of our God extended to the greatest of sinners. Here is a fountain opened. Here the Lord Jesus Christ, through sign and seal, offers to sinners nothing less than the full remission of sins, as well as all the blessings of being called the sons of God. Beloved, this should thrill our hearts. And for those who are weak, those whose faith is flagging, friend, the sacrament is to be an encouragement to you. That even today is offered to you that open labor, that open fountain, and that the call to come is Christ's himself. Amen. Let's stand once more as we come to the throne of grace together. Our blessed and eternal God, we come into your presence this afternoon, Father, thankful that you have opened to us your word. You've called for yourself a people, though we were once indeed without God in the world, strangers and aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. Father, we thank you and we praise you that though we were once in darkness and moreover a people delighting in it, that you were delighted to call us out. You are delighted to take firebrands from the fire and to make them sons. Father, we bless and praise your name for the free grace that is offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also praise and we thank you that his redemption penetrates all of life. And we thank you, Father, that he is interested in setting apart families and placing the triune name upon them. And even through them, to call for himself a holy generation. And so, Father, we praise you and we thank you as well for the privilege of seeing now, observing the sacrament of baptism. Lord, we ask that as we observe As it's administered, we pray that, Lord, we would truly look by faith to that which is signed and sealed therein. And that as we lay hold of he who is the substance of that covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we would receive more, more of his saving benefits applied. Bless us, we pray, as we ask all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. You may be seated. And at this time, I would ask if Mr. and Mrs. Peter Foster would come to the front, please. As you know, uh, Peter is a member of our congregation and Catherine is a member of an evangelical church in England. Uh, So Peter, I'll direct the the questions of membership to you specifically, but then to both of you, uh, the queries for baptism. Uh, Peter, please verbally indicate your assent after each question. Uh, First, I accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the only Redeemer of men, supreme in church and state, and in dependence on divine grace, I take him as my Savior and Lord. I promise by divine grace to show a teachable and submissive spirit to the teaching of the Holy Scripture as set forth in the testimony of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. I promise... That by the help of the Holy Spirit, I will endeavor to live a life consistent with my profession. Now, to both of you Do you acknowledge your child as a covenant child, and according to the gracious design of Christian baptism, do you dedicate your child to God and present her for recognition as a member of the church? Do you promise to perform the following parental duties? To pray that your child may be renewed and brought to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as signified in the sacrament. To seek that your child may come to know the holy scriptures and to know the duty of committing herself to God. To rule well your household, practicing parental authority with firmness and love, setting the example of a holy life and consistent life, and according with regularity to personal family and public worship. And to seek that your child may, while young, Come to understand the history, doctrine, and practice of the Reformed Presbyterian Church and may be helped to experience the blessings of loving obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you so promise? And now to the communicant members of this congregation. Do you promise to pray for this covenant child and seek by example and precept to encourage her to walk in the ways of the Lord? If you would, please indicate by your assent by raising your right hand. As we come now to the administration of the sacrament of baptism, this is a joyful occasion as well as a solemn one. And as we, as we observe this sacrament, it's right for us to remember that, that those of us who are baptized are to improve our baptism while we see the water applied. And one of the ways that we can do that, as you remember perhaps, is that in baptism the full name of the child is stated. And the way you and I are supposed to think of that, it's very simple and it's very practical. You perhaps remember, of course, that in the epistles, Paul describes himself, Paul, a servant, or a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, etc., etc. Well, friend, in baptism, as the triune name is applied, as your name is joined in the sacrament, the sense is that you now are called. You are called, your name, so, such and such, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, as it were, your surname. And so, friend, as you and I, we observe the sacrament ourselves, as Laura herself will be instructed to think of her own baptism in time to come, we ought to think of it in that way. We are set apart, his name placed upon us and surnamed by his. May the Lord lead us to think in these ways as we observe this sacrament together. Once more, let us come before God in prayer. Let's stand to pray. Our blessed and eternal God, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who is pleased to give to your church signs and seals that are for the strengthening of your people's faith. And Father, it is our great desire this morning that we would reflect much on the great grace that is tendered to us in Jesus Christ and that is herein signed and sealed. Father, we pray that you would make us a people, a people thankful that you indeed have called to yourself a lot of sinners, unworthy in themselves, to be called sons, to be adopted into the family of God. We pray, Father, that even as we leave this time, that you would bless then the sacrament to us in this way. Father, we pray that as well you would be gracious to Laura, to Peter and to Catherine, to their home, that as they reflect upon this moment, they would do so with that solemn joy, and knowing that the name of their triune God has been placed upon them and that they too have been called out from an untoward generation. Called. Called a people of God to whom the promise belongs. Lord, may this be a great encouragement to them and to us. Bless us, we pray, Father. As we ask all in Jesus' blessed name.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: Peter, if you would please... State your child's full name. Laura
1: Patricia Jeannie Foster.
0: Laura Patricia Jeannie Foster, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Let's, Let's continue in prayer together. Our gracious and eternal God, we thank you and we praise you. We praise you that a fountain has been opened for sin and for uncleanness. And we thank you, Father, that you are a God who is pleased to cleanse sinners. And so we ask, Father, even now this morning, that you would be gracious to us, be gracious again to this this young family. Lord, let it be that in the years to come, not only would the sign and seal be remembered, but its substance enjoyed. Lord, we ask that you would do this for your own name's sake. As we ask all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen. So we close our service of worship this afternoon. I invite you to take with me your psalters and turn to Psalm 87. Psalm 87. We sing there the entirety of the psalm, which concludes these words. Of Zion it shall be said, This man and that man there was born, and he that is most high himself shall establish her. When God the people writes, he'll count that this man born was there. There be that sing and play, and all my wellsprings in thee are. Uh, beloved, this is a psalm that speaks of the engrafting of God's people into uh, the covenant people of God. Where, says the Lord, all my wellsprings are. May we sing in praise to our God who has wrought such redemption, given such precious promises, these words. Psalm 87, the entirety of the psalm, will stand to sing to God's praise, and afterward, please remain standing for the
1: benediction. Well oh.
0: benediction. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. As moderator of the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Lock, Brooklyn, uh, I do declare this court uh, out, of, out of session uh, in, Zion's, in the name of Zion's only king and head. Maybe see
1: so. it. <laughs>